So Romans 11:33 through 36, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And just one thing I wanted to leave you with this morning. I was um, had worship music on in my house this week, and I sent a screenshot to a friend of mine, um, and it reminded me of the song that Kyle was singing there at the end that was new to all of us. And this song is... Uh, by Elevation Worship, Maverick City Music. It's uh, Jaira that you may have heard, and it just resonated with me as he was singing that song. And I, I screenshot it, and it says, it doesn't take a trophy to make you proud. I'll never be more loved than I am right now. And so I just want to encourage you, there's nothing more that you can do to earn the grace and mercy of Jesus. Enjoy the service. Sounded a little bit like a drum roll, didn't it? No drum roll here. If you're wondering why I'm down on the floor today when I'm usually up there, uh, you like that better? Yeah, a lot of people have said that. You know, we have our fifth Sundays, and the pastor is usually down here. And, uh, you know, there's a gap between us and God because of our sin, right? And we, f we feel that. It's been filled by Christ. Thank God. Uh, I don't want there to be a gap between you and the, and the, the pastor, right? The, the Bible calls us elders, calls us shepherds. Peter says we're to shepherd the flock of God among which we exist. We're among you, not above you. So uh, this seemed like a good transition for us. We're, this is an experiment. We're going to try it out. The sound sounds a little different. I'm hearing like a little echoey. Or, you like that too? Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> Well, let's do this. Let's, uh, let's say a prayer, and we're going to dive into Scripture together, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for these songs that we've already been singing, and these lyrics that we have rehearsed that remind us of how gracious and compassionate you are, how rich in mercy and grace, and how you lavish those things upon us, Lord how undeserving we are, and yet how kind you've been to us. Thank you for, as Mark prayed, we, we have freedoms in this country. We're thankful for them, Lord. We take them for granted, and sometimes we, we transfer our hope and our trust to those freedoms and the people that are protecting them, Lord. Our, our hope is ultimately in you, but you use means to accomplish your ends. But I pray today, Lord, we would have gratitude in our hearts and humility that we, we have the freedom to come here and worship, to open up your word. It's been preserved for us. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. We know that it's powerful. We read it, but it reads us. It analyzes us, Lord. It opens our heart, and we want that today. Please open our hearts, Lord. Show us places where we are not trusting in you. Show us places, maybe blind spots that we have. We need clarity. Maybe high places that we have, Lord, that need to be torn down idols that we're trusting in and hoping in that are that are going to leave us jaded and disillusioned and disappointed lord and empty and guilty i pray that we would see christ in all of his glory today we pray these things in christ's name amen
Well, my remote's not going to work today, but that's okay, because we got Charles on the job up there. Um, I'm going to reread that passage. It's been a couple of weeks, and this sermon has been stewing. It's been in the oven. It's been on the burner. It's been simmering. I've been really eager to preach this. This may be a two-weeker, okay? We got communion today. You can remind me at the end of the service if you have believing children in the back that certainly you'll, you'll probably want to invite them to, to celebrate communion with you and celebrate the Lord's table. So the cue is at the end of uh, the service when we pray and, and when Brother Michael is going to come and, and do communion, you can go and get your children. But it's been a little while, so let me reread that passage and just frame our thoughts. It's in Romans chapter 11, the passage Mary Beth just read. And it starts with, oh, the depth. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Now, the last time we were in this passage, I told you that there were a couple of words I think you could use to describe this culture that we're living in today. And those words would be cynical and it would be shallow. And look, that's not me as a pastor up here taking pot shots. I live in this culture. I love this culture. There are things that are redeemable about this culture that are echoes of the beauty and the grace of God. And there are things that are really ugly that we should stand against and oppose as followers of Jesus, as his apprentices and his disciples. So I'm swimming in the same cultural waters that you are. Sometimes we feel like we're drowning. We're trying to take a breath of of, of fresh oxygen. Instead, we swallow something hideous and ugly, and it's, it's, we're, we're swimming upstream spiritually, so to speak. So if you just let the cultural waters take you where they're wanting to take you, you will be a cynical person. You will be a shallow person. Cynical, that means we believe the worst. We expect the worst because we seem to read about the worst, and sometimes we feel like we experience the worst. Brokenness, betrayal, abuse, so we grow pessimistic, we grow distrustful of ourselves. Sometimes we, we grow distrustful of people. We've been let down, we've been disappointed with our leaders, our politicians, sometimes even our spiritual authorities, elders, pastors, people we put all of our chips in their corner and they disappoint us, they let us down. So we grow cynical, we grow pessimistic. The glass is kind of perpetually half empty. That's what it means to be cynical. We're, and, and because we're so distrustful, we don't believe anything good is going to happen to us because we don't really believe anything good has happened to us. Nothing good is happening, and so we expect the future is going to be the same. We're waiting for the hammer to drop. You ever feel like that? You're just waiting for that thing that's around the corner that's going to knock the breath out of you and be the, and be the knockout punch for you. That's cynical. And then shallow, because we live, we exist in the cheap, mile-wide, quick, my wide inch deep worldview that's been handed to us so that we, we play in the shallows and we eat this steady diet of superficiality. Listen, you can't scroll on your phone for hours a day. That, that's the statistics, statistics we get is that most people, I'm not judging you. I'm a part of that. You know, if we're not careful, we can just be immersed, just fall forward <laughs> like Frodo did, you know, in the swamp. We fall forward into, into these, this shallow, superficial 
water of social media, and we just consume that. But you can't do that, scroll for hours in this culture, and become a deep, profound, authentic, spiritual person. It's not going to happen. So cynical and shallow, but listen, there's another word. There's another word that I've picked this week that I think is a combination of the two, and it's this. It's numb. Because I've heard that a lot. People are just numb. They say things like, I'm over it. I'm just over it. I have no feeling. That's what the word numb means. It means a deprivation of sensation. You don't feel anything. You feel maybe calloused or hardened. There's even an emoji for it. It means expressionless. Detached, dead, indifferent, unfeeling. Now look, guys, I love you. I care about you deeply. And as a pastor, I want to lead you into green pastures and still waters and down paths of righteousness. Or I want to at least connect you to the one that does that, right? The chief shepherd, so that our souls can be restored and so that our souls can be refreshed. So I just assume that you've been swimming in these same cultural waters that I've been and that you need help. Do you need help? I need help doing this, man. I'm, I'm trying to help myself, not in the self-help sense, but you know. I'm trying to expose myself to God's word and rehearse the truths and the privileges of the gospel every week. And that's what I, I show up here to do. So I just assume you've been swimming in these waters and that you're in danger of growing numb too. So don't feel slighted. This is the air we breathe. And some people, look, they're just not swimming in these waters. They're drowning. And people, listen, numb people deprived of sensation who feel dead on the inside and they've lost their sense of wonder and awe, they'll do crazy things, risky things, dangerous things, foolish things to try and recapture that wonder that they've lost. That's why this sermon title today is Struck by Wonder. And by the way, it's a long introduction. Just, it's not a warning because the introductions are helpful, right? It's probably going to be a two-weeker, all right? This is a long introduction because I want, you know, my task, the difficulty as a pastor is to show you Hey, these passages in Romans, you need these. We need to plumb. These are depths, right? Oh, the depths, that means deep water in Greek is what that term has been used to mean in other places in Greek literature. It means these are deep waters. They're unsearchable. They're unfathomable. They're incomprehensible, but we need to stand on the abyss. It's, it's, I get this picture of, I get two images. One of Paul standing on the edge of this panoramic view of this beautiful mountain range. And he's just, he's, he's breathless. Not because he's climbed up there, because he's, he's stunned by the realities of what he's seeing. And he wants us to plumb these depths together. He wants to show you what he's discovered. He's been writing about it for 11 chapters. And the other I get is this man who's just hilariously overjoyed with laughter. And he's throwing the money up. He's so incredibly wealthy. And he's sitting like Scrooge McDuck. I grew up watching DuckTales, you know. He's sitting in this pile of gold coins. And he's throwing it up and laughing at how incredibly wealthy he is. But I don't always feel wealthy, do you? I feel impoverished sometimes, and I feel blinded to glory. So I need help, and I want to help you. So that's the reason for the long introduction here. People who are swimming in these waters, and they feel numb, they need this awe and sense of wonder to be recaptured. You know, I'm a child of the 90s. I grew up in the 90s. And uh, there was a 1991 blockbuster movie that came out called Point Break. Anybody see that? This, st this struck such a nerve with people that they remade it 25 years later, and it kind of, it fell flat. 
because they were trying too hard, man. It's like the door to Narnia through the wardrobe. You can only get in there once through that way. They were trying to, anyway, uh, this was an incredible movie. It had some serious stars in it. Keanu Reeves, Patrick Swayze made some serious money, 80 million. That was a lot of money in 1991. Uh, And it struck a serious nerve. This is one of my favorite movies. Don't judge me, okay? And it's, you know, my buddy, Jeff Eckert, who helped me plant this church. We co-pastored this church for the first three years. He grew up a pagan surfer in Ponce Inlet, okay? And I grew up uh, just, a, just a, uh, a country boy in Arkansas. So how in the world could this movie touch both of us? Well, here's why. Here's the, you can see it already. This was a, a quotable phrase from that movie that came out. You know, Patrick Swayze played Bodie. He's this, uh, he's the crew. He's the, the, the leader of this crew of surfers who, who rob banks, to, to fund their endless summer, right? And Keanu Reeves is uh, Agent Johnny Utah. He's undercover FBI. He's trying to infiltrate this gang, find out who they are, arrest them, capture them. So he gets too close. That's how all these movies work. He gets too close. He's in too deep, right? He starts getting sympathetic, uh, like the, what's that syndrome? What's it called? Stockholm syndrome. Anyway, uh, he gets in too deep, and so they have this confrontation near the end of the movie. And here's what Patrick Swayze says, Bodie says, he says, this was never about the money, man. <laughs> it's never about the money, is it? This was never about the money for us. It was about us against the system. That system that kills the human spirit. Sounds familiar. Sounds like culture, doesn't it? That system that kills the human spirit. We stand for something, man. <laughs> to those dead souls inching along the freeways in their metal coffins, the numb people, right? Right? To those dead souls inching along the freeways in their metal coffins, we show them that the human spirit is still alive. That resonated with people in Arkansas and surfers in Florida. The human spirit is still alive. We wanted to believe that. We wanted to experience that. You know, Patrick Swayze, he died of cancer years later, and in his memoir, he wrote with his wife, he said this about that character, one of his all-time favorite characters, and he's been in a ton of movies. He said this. He said, Bodhi was a once-in-a-blue-moon character, the bad guy whom you love, because you believe what he believes in. Swayze said, I love Bodie because I identified with his quest for perfection and the ultimate adrenaline high. And that's it, folks. That's what we're all after. We are all after the ultimate adrenaline high. Now, that may not mean you've got this bucket list where you jump out of an airplane or you surf, you know, the 50-year storm wave, but I can guarantee you that you are looking to get your heart captured by wonder and awe somewhere. That's what every human being is after, and we look for it in the wrong places. We look for it outside of God, and it, and it leaves us disappointed. It hijacks us. That's how cynical, shallow, numb people try and cope. We look for wonder. This is one of the greatest job descriptions I have ever read for what a pastor does. Check this out. It's a quote. I know that in ministry, I will be preaching teaching and encouraging people who are all, A-W-E, it's hard for me to say that, all, or you could say wonder, same, same idea, who are all forgetful, all discouraged, all empty, all deceived, all seduced, all kidnapped, and all weary. My job is to give them eyes to see the awesome glory of God, His glorious grace, wisdom, power, faithfulness, sovereignty, patience, kindness, mercy, and love. Further, It is my job to connect this glory to the everyday experience of the hearer in a way that engages the heart and transforms the life. 
Whatever the ministry moment or biblical passage being discussed, I am called to intentionally inspire all. Did you know that's what, I'm, that's, that's what my job is? I show up here every Sunday, and that's all I ask God to help me do. Help me to see Christ fully formed in you, and that means you're going to be struck by wonder at His power, at His beauty, at His grace, at His love, and you're going to leave, you're going to leave here changed. And the Bible says the only way that's going to happen is if you behold him, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and you're transformed from one level of glory to the next. You're being changed as you behold Christ and as you consider all the things he's done on your behalf. That's the wonder that we need to be struck by, that we need to be pierced by. That's the thing that needs to actually seduce and captivate our hearts. And I believe that you don't have to look very far to see the wonder or the awe problems that Paul Tripp was talking about. They surround us and they assault us. Adultery is just a wonder problem. Do you know that? Why does a, a, a man or a woman leave his or her spouse and go chasing after somebody else? What are they after? They want to feel alive. They want to feel valuable. They want to feel needed. They want to feel that sensation, right? It's a wonder problem. Debt's a wonder problem. Why do we overspend? I mean, it's pretty simple. If you spend more money than you make, you will go into debt. And you can do it like this, like a dive in the deep end of the pool, or you can do it just really gradually, incrementally, 10 years later, and you owe $500,000 to 10 credit cards, right? Why is that? Is that just all the silly? They just didn't understand the, the basic fundamental principles of budgeting. Is that it? Nope. That would be like in counseling, me showing up to counsel you and say, hey, look, this is what you're doing. This is what the Bible says. Come on. <laughs> Does that work in counseling? No, I used to do that. That never works. It's, it's a wonder problem. Overspending is, is a wonder problem. Abuse and living for power and control is a wonder problem. You believe that? People that are trying to grasp that and people that, that are just mean-spirited and want to just control you. And also people that, listen, are, are the leeches. People that are codependent that will absolutely smother you with their need. You know, that's a wonder problem. You are their wonder. And I'm guessing you're, you're a poor substitute for the wonder we're looking at here, right? I know I am. Gluttony and obesity. You know what those are? Wonder problems. Just like addictions and enslavements are wonder problems, watching too much TV, shopping too much, eating too much, watching pornography, that's a wonder problem. Too much social media, being in love with your own image, that's a wonder problem. Gaming, I could go on and on. Fear of man, that's a wonder problem, and it's twin, radical insecurity, that's a wonder problem. What is your wonder problem? What's captured your heart that's been a poor substitute for Jesus? Paul's going to help us overcome that. Are you an angry, domineering person? Or are you a workaholic? This is, this is so real to me, man. I was preparing this sermon this week, and I got a text from my wife. And it was a reminder, hey, we have a requested parent-teacher conference. You know what those are? Some of you do. Both parents have to be there. And it's not just because it's that time of the year. It's because the teacher requested it. And I'm writing this sermon, man. I'm writing and I believe, and I'm thinking, Lord, do I believe this? Is this real to me? Because I, I want affirmation from people. Not just when I preach, but I want people to say, 
Tommy Clayton. He's an amazing dad. I just, I just hope to become just, if just some of this mantle will fall onto me. No, seriously, what do I want? I want people to think I'm, I'm a great dad, man. They, I want people's respect. I want people's admiration. I want them to approve of me. I'm an incredible father. I'm an incredible pastor. So I got this fear of man banging around in my heart. It's a wonder problem. Something has captured my heart and, and, and eclipsed the wonder and the awe that I should have in Christ. And then I probably, kid you not, man, as I'm writing this sermon, I get an email notification on my computer, and this image, come, it's, it's okay. It's not a bad image, okay? That's from Apple. Now, you, you tell me that the world doesn't know that what you're looking for is wonder. Wonder awaits you. All you got to do is spend a little bit of money. How much, Charles? Show us the next slide. There you go. We know you have a wonder problem, so if you just get this watch, or if you get this iPad, or if you get this MacBook Pro, or what's the other thing? Whatever it is, new phone. We're going to upgrade this phone again this year because you need that upgrade, really? It's a wonder problem, guys. That's all it is. And look, there's nothing wrong with those things. I use, I use Mac products. I think some of them are great. But I'm not looking to get my wonder feel from that, <laughs> right? So what's the solution? Well, in order to experience wonder, we need to be put in our place. Now, this is the rub. This is where you get offended, right? <laughs> we have got to be put in our place. And the only way that that's ever going to happen is if we put God in his place. And that's what Paul is doing here. Because as John the Baptist said, he must increase, we must decrease. He's got to be front and center. And when he's there, man, we shrink. But you know what? We want to shrink. We don't, but, but we don't feel insignificant though, do we? We feel like, man, I'm loved. I'm prized by him for the joy set before him. He pursued all the way to the cross. Paul does that here, and, and he does it with a contrast between fallen human beings and a sovereign God that leads to wonder. You know, I, was, I, was, I love etymology. I'm kind of an etymology nerd. Like, where does this word come from? You know, in the Greek. <laughs> but... The, the word wonder, the old English term wonder, it, it comes from a German word for wound. Did you know that? People have made those connections. And that's why you hear so often wonderstruck. You're struck by wonder. You're, you're, you had this membrane of awareness, and it's so thick and you're so dull, it's got to be pierced for you to wake up. I don't know, there's different ways to think of it. Maybe a smelling salt, right? You're, you're knocked out and... Ah! Or maybe this plunging thing. My brother-in-law has a, a plunge thing now where it's like, how cold is that? Like 40-something degrees. And what you, you're supposed to do is you get up early in the morning and then you go under this ice-cold water for three minutes. No thanks. Hard no. Hard pass. Right? But that, I mean, I hear it. I'm not making fun of it. I'm just saying not for me. Okay? That awakens you. That pierces you. And, you know, here's your numb reality you're living in. We need to be pierced and struck. And that's what Paul is doing here. We need to be wounded by wonder. And, and look, even before Paul does this in the end of Romans 11, this is all over the Bible. It's all over the place. Listen to, you remember Job, the very end, this is one of my favorite places in the Bible, the very end of it. Job is asking God, he asked God 84 questions. And it's basically, uh, excuse me, Job keeps asking God basically, why? What did I do? I'm innocent. I'm a righteous man. Why are you letting this happen? 
And God's, <clears throat> God's had enough, and God asked Job 84 questions. He takes him on this whirlwind tour of the universe, and he shows things to Job that Job has seen, but he doesn't fully understand. Then he says, so how are you going to understand what you haven't seen? But at the very end, this is what Job said. I don't think this is the verse that you have up there. That's for later. This is, this is Job 40. Check this out. This is after Job encounters God in a tornado, probably a level five funnel, right? Whirlwind. He says, behold, I am of small account. Have you ever, have you ever made that affirmation after you've encountered the grandeur and the majesty and the sovereignty of God? You see God in all of his glory, all of his sovereignty, all of his majesty, and you say, I'm of small account. Because listen, all the cultural waters you're swimming in, that's the last thing they want you to think. <laughs> they want you to think you're the center of your own universe and you need to do you. And if it feels good, do it. That's the only way you're going to recapture wonder. But Job says, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. That means no more questions for you, God. I get it. And then a little bit later, he says this, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Here's another place in Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah, King Uzziah died. He'd been the king for, I think, five decades. And all of Israel's future is in jeopardy, and nobody knows what's going on. Can you imagine a king or a queen for 50 years, and then they die suddenly, and Uzziah died of a curse. He was cursed by God. He had leprosy because of his pride. And so Isaiah, being the prophet of Israel, he, he goes into the temple to see like, Lord, I need to meet with you. And he gets this, this vision in chapter 6. He says, behold, I saw the Lord high and lifted up on his throne. The train of his robe filled the whole court, the whole temple. And there was this vibrating voice of angels saying, holy, holy, holy. And then Isaiah says this, <clears throat> he says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, it's all over the place in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Remember, Jesus told Peter, put out further and drop your net on the other side, and he brought in this haul of fish that was supernatural, miraculous, and then what did Peter say? He said, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Can't be in your presence. They were struck by wonder. They were put in their place. A few things about wonder. We've been created with a capacity for wonder and awe. We're hardwired for it. And that's why we long for it. That's why we chase after it. That's why we'll spend money to get it. We'll do dangerous, risky things to try and recapture it. And we learned this early. I told you one of my kids plays Little League Ball and there was a really important game going on the other night, getting near the end. And these kids who are out there, they love baseball. They're out there playing, their hearts are in it, the score's tied, I think it's like 11-11. And all of a sudden, you see kids in the outfield just start looking up in the sky. All of them. And then the coaches start looking up in the sky. And then the people in the stands look up in the sky. And I look up and it's the, it's the Falcon 29 uh, SpaceX. Did y'all see that last week? It was amazing. For like a minute and a half, that thing, it lit up the, the night sky. It was beautiful. And the umpire, the umpire was getting frustrated. And I kid you not, man, he, he stood up, he took his mask off, 
And he, he was a player on the Stetson baseball team, and he, and he said this. He said, time, rocket. <laughs> and he called time out, and we all looked at that rocket for about a minute. And everyone was struck by wonder because baseball couldn't do it anymore. It wasn't enough. Love for love of the game, that wasn't enough. We, had to see, we saw something greater that surpassed what was going on. And it captured everyone's attention, every coach, the umpire, the players, the audience. So we learned this early, man. That's what Paul is, is banking on here. That's why all is our lifelong pursuit. You don't even need to come to church to hear this. Albert Einstein said this. He said, he who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. When you lose your sense of wonder and awe, you're in serious trouble, in other words. So Paul is going to, Paul is going to help us be in awe. He's going to help us recapture and be pierced by wonder again. And in doing so, he, he shows us a few things. These are kind of some preliminary points. He shows us a few things about worship. Because that's what Paul's doing. He's worshiping. He's just getting lost in praise. Oh, the depths. How amazing God is. So here's the first thing he shows us. Number one, there is no worship without truth. Worship requires truth, right? Is, if worship is fire, then truth is fuel. And, and the purest fuel is Scripture, right? Now, Paul's an inspired apostle, so he's writing Scripture. But did you know he quotes Scripture? You can put those Scriptures back up from Job and Isaiah. He quotes from Job chapter 40, or excuse me, Job 41. And he says this, No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. He's talking about this beast, Leviathan. Who then is he who can stand before me, God says? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So Paul's quoting Job there, and he also quotes Isaiah. Check it out, Isaiah 40. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? So you can have no worship without truth. I know some Eastern disciplines will tell you to empty your mind. That's what meditation is. But God calls us to fill our minds with truth. So Paul never treats, this is, the second thing is there's no truth without worship. You can't have worship without truth, but you shouldn't have truth without worship. You, we don't wear spiritual lab coats in here and just analyze and dissect the Bible in some cold, lifeless, detached manner. This actually leads us, Paul is leading, he's been leading us to this place all along, all 11 chapters Paul's been leading us to this place where we can stand with him on the edge of this mighty panoramic view of, of God's plan, God's sovereign plan of salvation, and just stand in wonder. The point of the Bible is not to fill your head with knowledge, it's to fill your heart with wonder. That's the whole point. The Bible is an ends to a means. That's why, listen, churches like Grace Life Church have to be so careful because if we're not careful, we will make the Bible the ends and not the means. The Bible is just a means to a greater end, to see God and to celebrate God and to enjoy God. It's the chief end of man and the Bible, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Paul never treats truth simply as something to be known or even just applied. It's a gateway to worship for him. 
He uses truth to, to see God. So we have to let ourselves be disturbed and be comforted and be challenged by the truth so that we can feel its power and see its beauty. That's what I pray for you, that you will feel the power of this and you will see the beauty of this. And the third thing about worship is truth that exalts God leads to the deepest worship. Truth that exalts God. If, if you can't have worship without truth and truth should lead to worship, then it makes sense that truth about God should lead you to the greatest worship. And that's what this is. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. This is all about God. That's what I'm struck by when I see this passage. There's nothing about us in there at all. This is all about God. One person said, the best praise, the most joy-giving praise is anchored in who you know God to be. And that is not known primarily through the small tokens of his favor in your life, but through his dramatic work of salvation in human history. This is serious stuff, and, and it's, no, it's no accident that the very next passage, can we put that up, Romans 12? We're going to get to this. The very next passage, Romans 12, it says this. You know, I've told you, Romans 1 through 11, there's only three or four commandments. That's a lot of writing from an apostle to a church without telling you to do anything, right? But the very next chapter, boom, 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 we're going to get all these commandments, so you could say that this is like a hand. This is a door. So right after this passage, we behold God and we're struck by wonder. The very next thing Paul does is he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Anytime you see that word, therefore, you need to ask, what's it there for, right? Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, he's just shown you all these mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, what? Worship. And then check this out. It's one of the first real commands in Romans. You know what it is? Do not be conformed to this world. That, that's the word age in Greek. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So check this out. This is something really cool in here. Let's nerd out for a minute. The word do not be conformed or the verb don't be conformed and the verb don't be transformed, those are in the passive sense, passive tense. Did you know that? That means that is something that's done to you. In other words, if you don't fight against the cultural waters that you and I are floating in and existing in, if you don't fight, they are going to press you into the mold of this world. That's what that phrase means. Don't allow yourself to be pressed into the mode of this world and become cynical and shallow and numb. Instead, be transformed. But that verb is in the passive too. It's crazy, isn't it? It's don't allow the world to do this to you. Invite God to do this to you. Both of those things are actions that are done to you. So the world is making disciples. And if you don't fight against it, you will be pressed into that mode of the world. You've got to fight. And that's what we're doing today. We're fighting. We're fighting for the right kind of wonder and awe together. So the last time we, we looked at this passage, we just had two points. The first one was uh, 
I think we have that. Yeah, the first one was that the gospel holds depths that require unpacking but yield wonder. That's what Paul's doing. This, this, these three, four verses here, he's unpacking all 11 chapters. This is like a summary. And I'll be honest, I don't like summaries. I don't like it. If I showed up on a Sunday and somebody said, hey, we've gone through Romans 1 through 8, and now I thought before we get into chapter 9, we'll do a quick summary. I'd say, oh, great, man, I came on the wrong Sunday. I don't want to hear a whole bunch of information. But Paul does that, and he does it in a really succinct way that I think is going to be helpful for us. The gospel holds depths that require unpacking, but you'll wonder. A second point was unpacking and celebrating those depths is a community project. It's, it's something that we do together, and that's what we're going to do today. So those were the points. We just actually didn't really unpack much. So today we start actually unpacking what these things mean. We want to be, be struck and pierced together. So here we go. Here's the outline. The first thing, is he, the first thing he says is, oh, the depths of the what? Riches. 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 That's spiritual wealth. That means the spiritual wealth. That means Paul wants you and I to behold the riches that God has bestowed upon us freely, unconditionally, lavishly. He's given to us all these things. And he's talked about all those things throughout Romans. And now he wants you to be like the man, like Scrooge McDuck, right? Except you're not a Scrooge, you're not stingy. He wants you to take all these riches and throw them up and celebrate. Look how incredibly wealthy I am. Look at all the things that God has given me, not because of me, but in spite of me. I didn't deserve this. I didn't earn this. Anytime you see the word riches in the Bible, it's usually connected to grace, unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor that was accomplished and secured by another on your behalf when you didn't deserve it, right? That's, see, that's Paul putting us back in our place. To help me remember what grace is, I've always used kind of the acrostic for grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. God's riches given to you at Christ's expense. What did it cost him? It cost him everything. We're going to celebrate that at the end of the service today. God's riches at Christ's expense. His exceeding spiritual wealth. God isn't just generous, he's overflowing, he's lavish. He's kind to us who have no claim on him. On the contrary, we were rebels, we were enemies. You remember Romans 5, it says, while we were without strength, while we were sinners, while we were enemies. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He came, he acted. Where sin abounded grace abounded all the more. Nothing could hijack or thwart God's plan to enrich the people that he had loved from all eternity. Chapter 10 says, for the same, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, we talked for just a few minutes, I think, the last time we were in this passage. I've often used um, Richard Lovelace's outline for the things that we've been given. He says we are, we are accepted. Because of Jesus Christ, we are accepted. Isn't that the quest that we're all on? Don't you want to be accepted? Didn't I want to be accepted at that parent-teacher conference? Yes. Was I? Maybe. Ask me later. I don't know. <laughs> we are accepted in Christ, the one whose opinion matters the most, the one whose affirmation carries the most authority and weightiness in our life, right? 
We've been accepted by Him. We've been reconciled. We've been made right. We've been welcomed back into His presence. So we have been accepted. We are free. Do you feel free today? Do you know that the power of sin has been broken because of Jesus? We talked about that Romans 6 and 7. It's all about you are free. You are free from the guilt of sin. You're free from the condemnation of the law. You've been delivered from the law as a means to being right with God. We don't use it that way anymore. That's not the way God intends for the law to be used for a Christian now. You don't get right with God through the law. Jesus did that. We couldn't do it. The law through our flesh was weak, right? So we're free. We've been filled with the Spirit. We've been filled with hope. We've been empowered. So we're accepted. We're free. We're not alone. We've been given God's Holy Spirit. Christ is with us. All authority has been given to Christ, and He promises to accompany us on our mission. And then the last thing is that we have spiritual authority. We are not alone. We've been given armor. We are not at the mercy of the spiritual forces that are around us. And we're not ignorant that they're there. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And we've been given the breastplate of righteousness, right? We've been given the helmet of the hope of salvation. We've been given the shield of faith and the sword of God's word and a bunch of other stuff that I often forget. (laughs) We have spiritual authority. So this is Paul inviting us to count, count your spiritual money out. Like, look what God has given us, man. God's way of salvation, His way of restoring sinful men and sinful women and giving them the righteousness that they lost has empowered us and enriched us incredibly because we were all in the same boat. You remember, Romans tells us that. Jews and Gentiles... We were guilty before God. All have sinned and fallen short of the righteousness of God. And the law has shut our mouths. None of us would have any excuse standing before the judgment bar of God. We have no excuse, right? All the terms used for sin in the Bible, one means twisted and broken. One is an archery term. It means to miss the mark. The other one means to transgress and trespass. This righteousness is a righteousness that comes by faith, not by works. And that's good news because anybody can get in on this. That offers hope out out to anybody. You don't have to accomplish some bucket list to please God, right? You don't have to go get the broomstick of the wicked witch of the West or accomplish some great spiritual feat. Now listen, this is for me to remind you as your pastor, you go check out every religion in the world besides Christianity, and you're going to get a bucket list and a grocery list. Some great feat, some great pilgrimage, some enlightenment or nirvana, or some obedience path that you have to maintain and keep perfectly. And like Kyle said, you never really even know till the very end if you've done enough. I cannot imagine a more insecure way of living spiritually than that. But no, the law shuts our mouths and puts an end to you thinking you can do, accomplish some great feat. We have an, 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 a righteousness that's received, not achieved by us, right? And that's important because self-justification is the deepest impulse of the human heart. Did you know that? We are self-justifiers. It goes all the way back to the garden. The woman you gave us, right? 
That's why Martin Luther said of the gospel, the message about Jesus' rescue, he said this, this doctrine cannot be beaten into our ears enough. That's why he was one of the leaders of the Reformation. He pounded it into his people's ears. Then here's another, here's another part of our wealth. We have assurance, chapter 5, right? Our union with Christ. The first Adam failed. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, succeeded. He has victory. Remember Matt's sermon? Jesus and Goliath, right? He's conquered our, our giant of sin and guilt and Satan and death. He did it all. And we're united to him. That's what our baptism displays and reminds us of. So his victory is our victory. We have assurance. We can't lose it because we didn't, we didn't accomplish it. He did. And then our sanctification. God is conforming us and pressing us into the image of his son. And now we're led by the spirit. We've been adopted. We're sons and daughters of God. We've been set free. We're blood bought. We have a place at the table and entrance into the kingdom. Man, that's our wealth. That's the riches. We're a citizen. We've been equipped to serve him and be his ambassadors, to herald his message, and to maintain a, a faithful presence in the world. That's all been given to us freely by God. Now we have a purpose, a new identity. Those are just a few of the deep, unmeasurable riches that we have. And I'll just do one more, and then we'll celebrate communion, okay? That was, hopefully we're struck by wonder at that. That's what Paul wants us to do. He wants to take and turn our face to everything he's been saying in Romans and say, do you realize what you have here? Do you realize what Christ has done for you? What you couldn't do for yourself, what you wouldn't do for yourself. And here's the other thing he says. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Well, what is wisdom? You know, wisdom is different from knowledge. You can have knowledge but lack wisdom. You can get a a medical student who's top of his class, who memorized the textbooks, put a patient in front, of him, in front of him, and he's clueless. Why? What does he lack? He lacks wisdom to know how to apply all that stuff he learned. And the Bible says that God has this depth of wisdom. That's why God devised a plan. Even before the foundation of the world, even before Adam even fell, he had devised a plan that he would send his son into the world to die for rebels and sinners like you and me. That was, that was plan A. There was no plan B. That was plan A. Think of the wisdom that it took to secure that plan and to accomplish that plan. It's not the way we would have done it, man. <laughs> but God's ways are not our ways. The compassion of God moved him to come to fallen man, to stoop down in an unspeakable act of condescension and incarnation. <clears throat> We were perfect people in a perfect environment, and we broke a perfect law, and God acted. And his wisdom was, how can a sinful person be made righteous in God's eyes? And his plan was, only one way that I can send my son to live a perfect, righteous life and give it to those sinners as a free gift. That was God's plan. And this is why God's plan is so wise. Check this out. Because it doesn't depend on you and me. If it did, we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? But listen, you can, you can take this gospel to the heart of Africa, or you could take it to the philosophers at Athens, 
And you're going to find the same need there. You're going to find the same condition, the same problem that's going to lead to the same solution. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you go to the Library of Congress, you go to Oxford and Cambridge, or you go to the Amazon jungle. Because of God's wisdom, anybody can get in on this. All you got to do is receive God's, God's gift. It's a foolish message, isn't it? The world despises and ridicules it and mocks it, but it's God's wisdom. You know, the wisdom of this world will take you so far away from God. That's why in 1 Corinthians it says this. The world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Because the Jews seek after a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling blocks and to the Greeks folly. But to those who are being saved, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's God's wisdom. That's not our wisdom. We would have never done that. Man would have gotten the glory for engineering and resourcing this amazing plan of rescue. But friends, I want to ask you something. You look at all the eons and the ages of when you and I see, we think our problem is we just need to be educated. We just need better politicians. We need better laws. Really? Is that our problem? I mean, haven't we came up with the best and the brightest minds, the, the best and brightest philosophers, <clears throat> the most corrupt politicians, right? The kings, the prophets, the priests, the judges, we've had them all. And the Bible says, when the fullness of time had came, Christ came into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were born under the law. That's God's wisdom. And it defies man. It, it like shatters our pride, and it needs to. That's the only way that God would get glory for himself out of this plan, is he has to take us out of the way. Anything our hands or our minds touch is corrupted. We have to be put in our place. The wisdom of this world has been turned on its head. It's power through weakness. It's life through death. It's wisdom through folly. Well, those are just a few of the riches. We didn't get very far. That's okay. <clears throat> we're going to pick this up the next time we're in this passage. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me, man, I'm losing my voice. And I also want to talk about Verses 34 and 35, it says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. It's interesting, man. He talks about the riches of God, what God has given to us. He talks about the knowledge of God, his mind. He talks about the wisdom of God, his counsel. And then he turns that and he says, Now consider... Consider your wisdom. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who has that kind of knowledge? Or who has been his counselor? Who's given God any wisdom? Or who has given a gift to him? Who's, given, who's enriched God? Nobody. This was all dependent on God, not dependent on man at all. And therefore, we have the greatest hope. It's all free. It's all unconditional. It's all secured and protected and accomplished by God. These are deep things. And I hope we're struck by wonder at it. I feel insufficient to, to try and <laughs> take you to the edge of that cliff and, and make you see, but I pray that that's going to be your, your meditation, man. That's what the scripture is for, right? It, we, we, I told you last time we talked about this passage, we've been given Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different vantage points to the, to the life and accomplishments of Jesus, and then we have the book of Acts that describes how this message spread all over the world. But you know, we've been given 22 other epistles 
that just take us deeper into the riches and the wealth of what God has given us through Christ. Do you remember Solomon? Um, I was telling our men this the other night. Solomon's wisdom was unsurpassed as far as human beings go. And it, and it went far and wide. And the queen of Sheba, wherever that was, she came from the ends of the earth, Jesus said, to come and, and see the wisdom of Solomon. And it says that she saw it with her eyes and, and she finally met Solomon. She said, look, behold, she said, I heard about your wisdom. She said, but now that I'm here, now that I've seen it, now that I've heard your knowledge and your wisdom, it says that no breath was left in her, and she says the half wasn't told me. Have you guys ever heard uh, a human being praised or an organization praised or a business or a family or anything, and we usually embellish things, don't we? We oversell things, and, and, and then we're disappointed. We're like, the deeper, the deeper we dig, we're going to find a flaw. We're going to know how the sausage is made, right? We're going to know the secret sauce and discover the real wonder of who you are, yeah. But you know what? Do you know what it says about Solomon? It says, behold, the half wasn't told me. Do you know what Jesus confronted the, the blind religious leaders in his day with? Do you remember what he said? He said, you know, the queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth when she heard about Solomon. And she came to him and she said, you weren't exaggerated. It wasn't embellished. It was undersold. I haven't seen the half of it. And Jesus says, behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And you refuse to see it. Friends, I just want to invite you as we close out and prepare, Michael, to prepare to, to come to the Lord's table. I can tell you the half hadn't been told us. How deep and gracious and loving and kind and merciful that Jesus is to us. And we'll spend all eternity plumbing the depths together. We might as well get a warm-up here, right? Do you know him? Do you know this Christ? Have you, have you tasted his goodness? Have you counted the spiritual wealth that he's given you? Man, that sounds so, so counterintuitive to say it that way. But it is. His riches, he's lavished these things upon you, man. And today I pray for the rest of the service, we enjoy them. And we thank God for them. And we remember the cost. It cost us nothing. It cost him everything, right? His body, his blood, his everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we prepare our hearts for communion and, and go and gather our believing children in the back, we, we are thankful, Lord, and we feel inadequate. feel like we don't even have the, the, the right compartment or the resources to plumb the depths of how loving and kind and good and faithful you are. Your steadfast love, Lord. It, it is astonishing and breathtaking. And I pray we would just get a sense of that today. May we bask in your love for these next few moments. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the people you are saving, the families that you are bringing, for the, the mission work and this community you're doing through this church, Lord. And we know there's many others. It's, it's astonishing to consider, Lord. You turn the wisdom of this world on its head. We don't see many noble, we don't see many mighty. You use ordinary people like us to accomplish your purpose. You get more glory that way, and we're thankful, Lord, to be in your family. Bless this time of communion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.